Today on the show, we talk about the pervasive theories surrounding the Pokemon world and war. Welcome to Lore Party, the podcast that explores the stories, characters, and universes of our favorite video games. I'm Bruce. And I'm Lawrence. And today we've got a very special, special episode. Um, just from the amount of research that both of us have been doing, uh, we've got a very, just lore-heavy uh, episode for you today here at Lore Party. Oh yeah, this is, uh, I didn't realize this was going to be one of my favorite episodes. Yeah, so uh, we're going to be talking today about uh, a lot of different theories, uh, thoughts, and evidence of war in the Pokemon universe. And I think it's something that I really, really have, you know, thought about. I think all of us have thought about, um, for lack of a better word, you know, we've not wanted it, but we've wanted to know more about it. There's obvious, like, clues and hints, but it's just kind of, Something that I don't know about you, but like I almost feel obsessed at of just like what kind of wars happened in a universe where you have animals just running around that can be domesticated and, you know, basically level a building. Right. All right. So, um, Lawrence, uh, you did a lot of research just on uh, some of these theories. And, you know, one of the longest standing ones is like the one from uh, Red and Blue. Can you kind of like, Give us a rundown. So the Pokemon theory, uh, the Pokemon war theory rather, stems from the first two games and a little bit of uh, like basically something that Lieutenant Surge says after you defeat him in Vermilion City. So Lieutenant Surge makes this comment about how his Pokemon saved him in the war. And if you play through, you know, Pokemon Red and Blue and even Pokemon Gold and Silver in this different region, you start to realize that, like, there's a tremendous lack of middle-aged adults. So in Pokemon Red and Blue, you know, you play obviously play as the character Red and your rival is Blue. And um, Blue doesn't have parents. He's an orphan who's been raised by his granddad and lives with his sister And uh, Red just has a mom and no one ever talks about the fact that these two don't actually have like, you know, full families. And then when you travel out into the world, you realize that when you run into adults, they're all really old. Like it's always Professor Oak age adults and then kids like bug catchers and whatnot. And then when you think about that even further, you start to realize that like, hey, they sent a 10 year old kid out to explore the entire world and to um, document all of the different you know, Pokemon that you run into. So the theory is that, you know, close to the beginning of the game, if not like, I guess when you're you're before or right around the time your characters are born, um, there is either a mass regional war between several different regions in the Pokemon world or uh, just between Johto and Kanto because they're neighboring civilizations. Um, But apparently the war was so, uh, so huge and so bloody that it wiped out mostly all of the uh, adults and just left the children. So that's a lot. 
to take in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I want to like, I, I don't know if you want to talk about this now or later, but I really wanted to talk about like why this theory is so powerful. I feel like for a world and a society that almost seems just too clean, too utopian, too perfect, there has to be something darker underneath it uh, that I think we all, almost in human nature, want out of the Pokemon world as we grow older, as we ourselves become adults. Uh, Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, the Pokemon world in itself is almost this like utopian society. Um, There is like, seems to be like a perfect harmony between, you know, animals and nature or, you know, animals and humans and like nature and civilization. There's like, there's this balance. Um, It's almost an almost inhuman balance. And so I think what makes this theory so interesting to people is because it's like a very humanizing, uh, it's a very humanizing thing. Like, like you wouldn't expect anyone in the Pokemon world. You wouldn't expect there to be war in the Pokemon world. You'd expect there to be battles and battles are how society solves its issues. You know, battles are a form of entertainment. Battles are how we develop these lifelong rivalries that help us grow and make our Pokemon stronger. But war is, is war. War is, is taking lives whether it's it's the lives of a person, it's the lives of a Pokemon. Like, we know that Pokemon are, you know, potentially deadly. Right. And, you know, we've seen, obviously, in our world, a lot of war. And, you know, as long as there's been domestication of animals and animal husbandry, we have brought animals into war. Even today, with, like, you know, modern warfare having dogs uh you know being there for combat they are there uh to help in the war to do things that either humans can't or don't want to do and you know putting that on just the farthest end of the spectrum with super powered animals just feels like it would be so easy you know right like just look at the attack hyper beam if you had like a hundred pokemon all doing hyper beam like that would be worth like hundreds of pounds of TNT right Right. there. Right. Especially when you're like, you know, Hey, don't hold back, kill them. Right. The theory kind of seems a little out there. Like, you know, it's like, yo, you killed all of the middle aged adults. How is that possible? But then you look at it like there are Pokemon that can, you know, generate electricity and that are like, you know, tall skyscrapers and that can melt boulders. So when you think about it, it's almost it, it seems very possible. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, this is why we don't have a war with Pokemon, because like they're capable of these things. And, you know, people who are at war are capable of doing anything. It's it's one of one, of I guess, in my opinion, one of the things that makes it super unbelievable also makes it the most believable. I mean, it, it just seems like such a real and I feel like logical step in the Pokemon world. Yeah. And I think like whatever you look at more than anything, we at least know factually that the Pokemon world that we see today, the modern Pokemon world 
has not always had this long period of peace. It has not always been that way. We see that with Lieutenant Surge, right. who is part of a military. A military force is established. There's a reason for that. And, that much we can be able to go on. And he did say, um, and it's canon, he did say that Pokemon saved his life during the war. So The war. And that Pokemon were involved. So, like, that we do know that in some respect, regardless of if every other part of the theory is incorrect, we know that the Pokemon world has experienced a war and that they do utilize Pokemon in times of war. Right. So, uh, other two uh, examples that I know of uh, one is the Pokemon movie uh, from 2005, uh, Lucario and the Mystery of Mew. Uh, Lucario, which is like this. Uh, bipedal dog Pokemon makes its debut in this movie where it is like frozen in time or like brought to the modern world uh, after, um, you know, being encased, uh, I believe, uh, just in stasis uh, for hundreds, if not thousands of years after a cataclysmic uh, medieval war. And you see armored Pokemon uh, on both sides uh, doing these huge giant moves uh, and a medieval war with Pokemon already sounds like something out of, you know, someone's fan book, but like it's confirmed here. On top of that, we also have the Pokemon X and Y uh, lore of, uh, let's see, the Pokemon Generations episode 18 called The Redemption, where it kind of dips more into it of the Pokemon of the Pokemon X and Y game, uh, where there is a endless war that's going on in the Kalos region about 3000 years ago, where a man, uh, where a King loses his, uh, favorite Pokemon, brings it back to life by building a large machine that he then shoots up and destroys, uh, the region ending the war, but killing, hundreds if not thousands maybe even millions of lives in what almost seems like a proto nuke um <laughs> whoa yeah i did like, not know about that and this this is canon like this happens in uh just some of the pokemon anime and mentioned in the pokemon lore uh but we're more privy to uh being shown the older pokemon wars wars from hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, making it seem archaic. And you know that, you know, I really like that. I wish we could get a little bit more, but there's nothing on a modern war except for what they did with Red and Blue with Lieutenant Surge. Right. And then, like, you know, that's all you get. You get nothing else on, you know, whatever conflict that he was talking about. And you know, you're just left to wonder like, hey, what happened to all of, you know, these adults in this region? And even when you look past the adults, um, you know, the adults being missing, there there are a lot of other other clues that kind of point to there being some sort of cat cataclysmic event that took place because your whole journey is about documenting, you know, Pokemon that you encounter. And I guess the older you get, you start to realize, like, hey, what sense does it make to have a 10-year-old child go around the world and, like, categorize Pokemon when we see that there are actually scientists in this world? But it makes sense that if there was some sort of, like, large-scale 
event that happened that there's a ton of information that was lost that needs to be recovered. And, you know, even in our last episode, we talked about how like there are these like wild and crazy poke like Pokedex entries. And, you know, we made the the comment with Shedinja about like, hey, what if this didn't actually happen? This was just someone's interpretation and everyone ran with it. Like yeah. What if that was because all information about those Pokemon was lost and the only thing that we could go off of was what someone thought happened? I really like that kind of approach. And, you know, it really does kind of support that theory of like why, like in a in a peaceful modern world with more than enough people with specialized skills, why would you need children to go out and study these animals that are potentially deadly just by looking at them uh if not for the fact that there isn't anyone else left to do that right you know uh, especially in times of crises a lot of cultures tend to lean on the younger generation to kind of just kind of take that l and you know go out and kind of build this foundation uh where many of those from the older generation either are too busy too old too weak or two dead. Yeah. So the final part of the the war that I, I want to get into is is like one of the inter- most interesting parts is you know when you think about okay like there is a war like who was going to war and why were they going to war in this time? Um, and so there are several theories on that. Um, one of the seri- theories are that like you know every region just went at it and there was a large scale like world war. Um, but the, the good theory I feel like is, uh, Kanto versus Johto, cause there are so many supporting facts. Um, it was, they were said that the conflict was over their, uh, different forms of government. Um, and that it, tensions between the two regions, uh, grew over time and there were territorial disputes, which is why Kanto has uh, missing number. Because uh, it was said that missing number was supposed to represent Pokemon that were originally in Kanto um, that migrated over to the Johto region uh, due to territorial disputes. Which is funny because you can even look at that as like Pokemon that were supposed to be released in Generation One that were released in Generation Two. But and and you know these are and if you look at the map, these are border regions. So it's like two. Right, yeah. They're just, they're divided by uh, Mount Silver. Yeah. And it's two warring states. And, and I'm glad you actually brought up what, you know, what the divide is because the theory goes that it was many years after, um, you know, in, in the period, many years after Red and Blue, where we have Gold and Silver, that tensions are still high or tensions are still there. But uh, they're slowly de-escalating, and the fact that they let you participate in the Kanto Pokemon League um, is supposed to be a show of good faith, and that the battle between you know um, the battle between Red and Gold is supposed to kind of signify the the reunification of those two regions. Like they look at the reason why Pokemon battles and the Pokemon league is so popular in these times is because you're still training people for potential conflict. I've also been uh, listening to, uh, if you know, the PBS idea channel, uh, they had an episode about this and they were also running around the, with the idea of the gym leaders kind of as an idea of a sheriff in a town. Um, 
They are the strongest in the region uh, of their respective towns where they kind of are the law of the land. And, you know, the Pokemon League are kind of like the para, like semi-military uh, in a sense where like they're the last line of defense. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I like that, actually. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. All right, we're going to take a quick break here, but stick around because we'll be right back. Hello, everyone. This is Michael from the Lore Party Podcast Network. I'm the producer and host of Minigame, a podcast that takes a deeper look at the stories of our favorite video games. Every episode is only about five to ten minutes long, and I analyze the themes, characters, and stories in the games we love and highlight games you may never heard of before. Subscribe to Minigame and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and anywhere else you find podcasts. As we're talking about this, we also have to think about just the consequences of what war can have with the kind of power that would come with the Pokemon universe. Right. And and even look at, um, like, what are the effects that, that make it into even, like, the peacetime era that, you know, are, are signifiers that there was a war? Yeah. So, you know, as we talked about before, war with animals is nothing new. You know, we got cavalry horses, combat dogs. Um, but when you put, like, giant fire-breathing dragons and, you know, animals that can literally explode on command, that's got to be, you know, something that <laughs> needs to be taken into account for when you look at a world like that and how it could even even sustain itself uh, for longer than a century without, you know, us just kind of destroying ourselves to kingdom come. We, you really have to think about the, the kind of balance uh, between a trainer and their Pokemon. And if what we at least come to understand, you know, the Pokemon world's Pokeballs are very recent, very new. And I think that definitely plays a very interesting and integral part of this theory in the fact that what we know as the modern Pokemon world has known war, but not war with the advancement of Pokeballs, which, you know, before that you would just have a very good understanding with your Pokemon. And that will be it. It, it Maybe like two, three max Pokemon that would be kind of under your command. But with, you know, just Pokeballs kind of domesticating them almost instantly, you can only imagine the kind of destruction that that kind of industrialized domestication can do for these overly destructive, basically monsters. Oh, yeah. No, that that paints a picture. And I have like so many responses. So you're you're right. Like having a Pokeball um, that instantly you know, domesticates a Pokemon. It's, it's, it's a crazy thing to think about because when you consider that they're like legendary caliber Pokemon and, you know, and you know, in the game that you can throw a Pokeball after you weaken it and capture it. And so, you know, you let loose like a Zapdos or a Moltres or Entei or anyone, and it's, it's going to do a lot of damage. And like, you know, just like you were saying, like, you know, people use animals in combat. Now I can only imagine, like you were saying, a group of people on flying Pokemon, like attacking strategic points or like 
poisoning water supplies or, you know, using certain Pokemon to do like unspeakable things. It's it's crazy. Like some it's like some Pokemon are walking war crimes. Yeah. That's like that's absolutely true. We um see like kind of two other things that kind of come out of war and are like the direct impact of war. One thing that you notice in Pokemon in every game, there is a lot of crime organizations. You rarely see law enforcement, but you see a lot of terrorist organizations like Team Rocket, Team Magma, Team whatever. You know, there there are a bunch of teams. You get one per game, basically, or two sometimes. Um, and they all seem to have the general goal of like conquering the world and being the one commanding power through the use of Pokemon. And and just like in, in modern times, we see like organizations like this kind of splinter off from military conflict. Like what once was a part of like an official military that's no longer needed, or um, you know, maybe a group, a you know, subsection of a military um organization that's gone too far or doesn't agree with the the rest of them splinters off into its own, you know, kind of uh guerrilla faction and then grows from there. For all of you know, the Pokemon world, or at least the Pokemon developers, avoiding modern warfare, they do not shy away from modern terrorism, crime syndicates, uh, things that are, like, are very, in my opinion, uh, very adult themed, very mature uh, for an audience of children um, that really just, you know, going, like, talking more about war or war being prevalent almost seems like just a very small step from what they already have right now right and the show makes light of team rocket as they're you know bumbling idiots you know that are always getting blasted away by ash but in the the you know point like the real thing there is that like team rocket is a very sophisticated sophisticated criminal organization like they do they're, they're an actual threat yeah and i mean they have funding and resources that like that make them a very strong like organization that you should fear. I mean, Giovanni, their leader, is actually a gym leader, so he's a part of the po- like the official Pokemon League. But you see that they have funding in in different areas like genetic research because it was Team Rocket and Giovanni that cloned Mew and made it more powerful. They created the ultimate psychic Pokemon. You know what just kind of dawned on me? Team Rocket's not a crime syndicate. It's not a mafia. A mafia does not make crimes against humanity and like clone animals to overtake the world. Giovanni may seem like, you know, a mob boss, but like his goals are so lofty and in line with more so a dictator yeah. than it is, you know, Al Capone or something. Right, because he's got that whole, um, you know, that that philosophy of Team Rocket as like, uh, you know, like it, it's not like, oh, we're like a terrorist organization. It's like the world is probably better under Team Rocket's control. And like, you know, we uh, can guide people to like, the, you know, a better future. And really, it's just like we're going to control everyone. And I wonder if that's also like, and this is me theorizing more on myself here, that 
Giovanni, or at least Team Rocket, got its start through kind of war profiteering uh, of like, what it does is steal Pokemon, but if it steals Pokemon and then sells them to different nations for to enlist in their armies, that sounds like, you know, probably where they get a lot of their money too. Right. So, I mean, what I kind of hypothesized myself and what I really took away from this is how much the modern Pokemon world that we see now is such a reflection of our current world. What happened in the past happened and it's somewhat similar to our own. You know, we have, you know, uh, we're living in one of the most peaceful times in human history right now. But you wouldn't, you couldn't tell by looking at it because we have, you know, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, you have, you know, North Korea and the ever constant uh, fear of nuclear annihilation uh, by the push of a button. Right. I'm sure a lot of people in the Pokemon world have that same kind of feeling. Uh, I think Pokemon battles are kind of there as this kind of proxy conflict uh, that, you know, you can just have this kind of sportsman-like show of force and control, show the power of the partnership between trainer and Pokemon without having to kill each other uh and just kind of you know i'll my kid's gonna battle your kid and we're gonna see who represents the best and brightest uh future for our countries yeah which what region you know develops the best trainers has the best pokemon um you know and can can take these these uh take this championship that's why when we were talking about like it, it's so powerful in gold and silver that you can participate in the Kanto Pokemon League, because it's it's more of that you know showing of uh, that the the rivalry and the past history of you know potential violence you know it's still there we still remember this but this is our our way of of showing that we're we're getting past that and that you know we're uniting we're having these battles out of respect and honor as opposed to like trying to kill each other well that about wraps it up we hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did please take a second to rate and review us on apple Podcasts. it really helps us grow the show and be sure to connect with us on instagram and twitter at lore underscore party thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time